I think a simple way to put it is that um, an E. coli cell, engineered or otherwise, is going to behave very differently, as you say, in a flask of LB grown in the microbiology lab compared to in the, you know, in the human body, because you do have a lot of these physiological parameters like pH, oxygen availability, substrate availability, the presence of other microbes, all of those things change right. um, throughout the gut. And so we, our models should be trying to take that into consideration. My name is Kashif, and this is BioRadio, a group of biologists turned bioinformaticians bring you into the world of research and development informatics by interviewing the people responsible for implementing systems and technologies to a unique and diverse set of use cases. Synthetic biology is revolutionizing drug discovery and design, ushering new biological capabilities and innovation to biopharma. Within this industry, biologists and engineers have come together to design, test, and build molecular components, networks, and pathways with the ultimate goal of creating more advanced treatments for patients. How have synthetic biology-derived treatments shifted, and how is it reinventing drug discovery? To talk about this, today we're here with Mark Charbonneau. Could you please introduce yourself? Hi, Kashif. Thanks for having me. Um, like you said, my name is Mark Charbonneau, and I work for Synlogic Therapeutics, which is a uh, drug development company based in Cambridge, Massachusetts. And we're developing genetically engineered bacterial therapeutics for the treatment of human metabolic and immune-mediated diseases. Awesome, great to have you. Uh, so let's jump right in. Let's start from kind of the beginning, right? So how, how do you define synthetic biology? I know it's not, it's not really a hard science and it, with, with clear guidelines in terms of where it starts, where it ends, but, but how do you define it? Yeah, I think that's a really great point that um, I think synthetic biology means different things to uh, different people. And as someone who's not sort of classically trained as a synthetic biologist, my definition might vary from others. But the way that I think about it is that synthetic biology is using the tools of engineering to, uh, to construct bacterial systems and particularly or microorganisms that can perform uh, functions that are, that are designed into those organisms. So that's usually a forward engineering based approach that uses standardized parts with some complex circuits and logic gates to perform an engineered function that's not natively found in the cell. Right, so it's around engineering a cell to do a certain task uh, with this concept of circuitry, which is representative of the parts, if I'm, if I'm capturing it correctly. Yeah, that's right. And so, you know, I think the, some of the earlier applications in the literature were sort of print proof of concept. Can you do this at all in bacteria using reporter systems? And then more recently, there's been a, a significant focus to develop therapeutics and, and other um, applications based on that technology. Just looking at the timelines, right? So, so you mentioned uh, the proof of concepts that was engineering E. coli. Uh, I know there was an anti-malaria, antiviral drug, right, which was using synthetic biology, which really brought it to the, to the limelight, to the spotlight. Could, could you speak to that a bit in terms of how, kind of where we were in terms of synthetic biology development in particular, and then and kind of where we're going? Yeah, sure. So, you know, I think the roots of synthetic biology actually go quite a bit uh, deeper than that. And in my mind, it goes back to uh, molecular biology and where the line between molecular biology and synthetic biology gets drawn is a little bit blurry. Um, but you know, the way that I think about it is that it really started with the development of recombinant DNA technology dating all the way back to the late 1970s and early 1980s with the formation of early biotech companies like Genentech that was using um, uh, bacteria and other, other cells to produce uh, human proteins with recombinant DNA. 
So that was a pretty radical idea at the time. And now it seems like kind of an ordinary thing uh, right. 40 years, 50 years later. But then, you know, that developed over time, uh, you know, applications there grew. And then synthetic biology, as we know it today, really was born around the turn of the millennium, around the year 2000. And so there, you know, that was the age of genomics when we started having more access to, to genome sequencing and those sorts of tools. Um, and that's when we started having people in the field developing new applications of engineered circuits in bacteria. And in particular, some of the first examples were done uh, in E. coli. And since then, the you know, synthetic biology has grown, the, the systems have gotten more complex, the circuits have gotten more complex, and the, you know, the chassis organisms have expanded beyond E. coli into yeast and eukaryotic cells. And you know, um, now the field is, is quite large. Right. So in, in your opinion, it was the advent of, of sequencing and, and uh, standardization of sequencing data that really led to the explosion of synthetic biology. Yeah, well, I think that's certainly one part of it, right? A better characterization of the genome of all the parts that are, that are there and present in the cell, as well as additional tools, you know, genetic tools that have come along to enable the, the, um, the modification of strains beyond E. coli, for which we've had tools for quite a long time. Other, uh, other chassis organisms are, um, have been, were less well studied in the time before that. Right. And speaking of tools, obviously, this p podcast focused on the informatics, right? And yeah, so looking at the tools specifically in synthetic biology for in silico design, how, where were those, let's say, 10, 20 years ago? How have those evolved over time? And, uh, and what are the biggest challenges on the in silico side? The tools over the last several years or the last couple of decades really have focused on metabolic engineering, which is to say you're looking at the, the total network of reactions that exist within the cell and trying to figure out how you can modify them in such a way that you can optimize flux through a particular pathway of interest. Right. And those tools are, are well suited for their purpose. But I think today, particularly as we're thinking about um, therapeutics uh, that are composed of engineered bacteria, so where the rather than trying to purify the protein the cells make or the small molecule the cells make, that the cells themselves are the drug, there we have to think about how the strain functions in diverse environments, including the, the changing environment that we see within the human body or within the human gastrointestinal tract. And so now that relates to you know, us having to, in the field, advance our thinking about computational tools that can predict the way that those strains perform under those uh, varying environments. Right. So I'm sure you see differences when you're in these really controlled environments, right? Uh, when, you're, when you're in an incubator, shakers, whatever, um, and when you're trying to translate that into in vivo, right? Live in the human or, or in your model, uh, model organism, I guess, how, how do you take into account so many different variables and try to design for that, try to optimize that in the in silico, uh, from an in silico standpoint? Yeah, I think that's kind of a central challenge of what we're trying to do. So I think a simple way to put it is that um, an E. coli cell, engineered or otherwise, is going to behave very differently, as you say, in a flask of LB grown in the microbiology lab compared to in the you know, in the human body, because you do have a lot of these physiological parameters like pH, oxygen availability, substrate availability, the presence of other microbes, all of those things change right. um, throughout the gut. And so we, our models should be trying to take that into consideration, right? And so I think that, you know, in terms of developing these models, the goal is really to strike a balance between putting in enough information that you can capture the behavior of the cells at a high level, 
but not so much information that you don't really have data to back up those, those estimates and the parameters that are being placed in the model. So I'll give you an example. You know, we're developing some of these you know, PKPD sort of models for our engineered cells as they transit through the gut, but we're really treating the cells as a whole unit. So we're not modeling these uh, in our current implementations down to the level of individual reactions that are happening within the cell or transit across a membrane because we may or may not have information uh, or data, good data, down to that level of detail. And so we have to abstract it away. Sorry, and just for our listeners, the PKPD is pharmacokinetic, pharmacodynamic, and we're looking at the response of that bacteria in the human system. Is, is, is that? Yeah, yeah, that's right. So, you know, I think in, in pharmaceutical development in general, uh, pharmacokinetics, that's, that's movement of the drug through the body. You know, how, where is it, over what period of time, when does it leave? And pharmacodynamics is the effect that it has on the biology of the, of the host organism or on the patient. And so when we think about engineered bacterial therapeutics, it kind of forces us to challenge our definition of what PK and PD mean. And so, right. you know, to me, PK is transit through, like for an orally administered strain, it's transit through the GI tract, right? It's the kinetics through the GI tract. And then PD is either it's uh, the mechanism that it's encoded to perform inside the GI tract or the effect that it has on host biology or some combination thereof. And that's what we're trying to capture with our models. Got it. And, and so in the context of a chemical drug, we're talking about half-life and efficacy dosage. Um, you know, a question that I'm, I'm always challenged with is how do you design the circuitry, right? We're even looking at the in silico side, how do you design that so that it does what you're intending it to do and then shuts off or, or there is this concept of a kill switch? Yes, and I, I think that's a great point. The, the suite of tools that we have for engineering bacteria and circuits in them and, and the components that can be used to, uh, to control those circuits are varied. But when you think about the application to the in vivo system, we have much less control over what those cells are going to experience after they leave the pill or after they enter someone's stomach. Uh, because at that point, adding inducers or controlling the amount of oxygen or the temperature um, are things that we may not be able to control. And so we have to engineer the cells to respond to the environment that they're in. On the one hand, that creates challenges and limitations. But on the other hand, I think that provides opportunity because we can think down the line about uh, what molecules or environmental conditions represent a disease state and engineer ourselves to respond to those and to respond in such a way that it has therapeutic value for the patient. Got it. And then on the design side, right? So you, you mentioned parts. I know there's the iGEM initiatives. Um, there's also like the BioBricks. I'm, I'm sure there are others. Uh, and then from a cloning perspective, um, there are several molecular molecular cloning techniques. You know, so there's Gibson, there's um, Golden Gate, they're sort of older molecular cloning techniques. How do you keep track of all of the parts that you're using? And then how do you annotate those? You mentioned looking at the metabolic response. How do you then associate this part creates this effect? And, and how do you keep all of the data together? I mean, I think that there are a couple of answers to that question. One is I think that there's sort of an empirical process involved, right, with uh, trying combinations of parts and then see, seeing what works, which is not maybe the most satisfying answer, but the reality is that the, the biology of the cell and the context in which those parts um, are functioning is so complex that sometimes we can't predict and you have to rely on an empirical approach to make that work. But from a drug development standpoint, I think what's really important there is about identifying what works and building off of that. 
right? So we have examples in the Synlogic portfolio, for example, where we've used particular parts in clinical candidates that have gone into healthy volunteers or into patients. And with those, we've been able to demonstrate that the cells are you know, safe and toler well tolerated, that they perform the function they're intended to perform, that they express the genes that we've encoded them to express. And so those parts have been de-risked. So individual promoter systems or say ribosomal binding site sequences that we can, um, we can use and we can use them with confidence because we've used them before. So I think there the challenge is, you know, when do we stick with what we know and what we've de-risked in the past? And when do we take risks to say that something could be um, could be better, or could be a next generation product or a next generation strain that has huge advantages, but we haven't de-risked it yet. And so I think there's going to be a strategic push and pull with that over time. And it, how much sharing takes place? I mean, I would imagine part of what your particular organization does is proprietary and, and you want to keep that to yourselves. Uh, but I know there are initiatives like iGEM and, and other registries that want to make it more open and create the standards and, and increase the collaboration. Kind of what's what's the mix there? Yeah, so there certainly is, a, particularly in the academic world, um, an effort to standardize parts and to create, you know, sharing and and those sorts of things. And I think it's uh, there's there's a lot of publication that goes on of of engineered organisms and, and new circuits and software for for designing them, and all these sorts of things that are that are really fantastic to move the community as a whole forward. You know, I think that that has to be balanced by from a commercial standpoint or an investment standpoint, um, protecting intellectual property. And so in the case of drug development companies or biotechnology companies, uh, we want, you know, there's, there's of course a, an interest in protecting inventions and that includes protecting the, you know, the composition of matter. And so uh, those, those will eventually become public knowledge and eventually enter sort of the, the public domain of, of parts that we have through the patenting process, but certainly for the initial development of them, they would be we'd be looking for protection of those. So I would imagine you have these databases, however large or small, uh, you use some computational approach to piece these together, like the individual parts to do a certain task that you're intending. Um, how many combinations do you go through, right? Uh, it's orders of magnitude, right? I mean, I, I, you've, got a, you've got very complex data with a lot of layers of data kind of on top of that, right? You have. You have the sequence, you have uh, annotation data, past history data, you know, like your, your, uh, the metabolic information, right? I would imagine there's a lot, how, how big, how many combinations are you trying? And then how, how do you, what's the starting point? What's the end point in terms of that funnel? Yeah, well, I think maybe it's helpful to work backwards. So the, the end point is one, because that's the goal, right? Because sure, absolutely. You know, there, are, there are certain aspects of there are certain aspects of this. Uh, I talk about this all the time that, that scale, right? So we talk about big data that scales and AI and ML approaches that scale. Um, but at the end of the day, what we're doing with engineered bacterial therapeutics and developing them is putting something through the clinical pathway. And so we have to go through all the same strict requirements of safety and efficacy that any drug would have to go through. And so in order to do that, you know, we're taking one thing through at a time or you know, maybe one thing with some process modifications or, or things like that. Um, but then working backwards, how do you get to that one, right? How do you form that funnel? And you know, really the, the business risk is around the fact that you're taking one thing into the clinic. How do you develop confidence that that one strain is going to be beneficial or efficacious for patients? And that's the best and one. So, <laughs> and that's the best one. Yeah, I mean, you may or may not know that, but I think that you know, the, sure. the goal is to try to be as confident as possible that you're meeting this threshold of efficacy or benefit. Um, 
that you want to have. So working backwards, I mean, I think at the base level, you could have hundreds or thousands of prototypes that are, um, you know, maybe they're plasmid based and they're built from uh, metagenomic sequences that are related to the function of interest. You may or may not have complete annotations for them, but that can be paired with some functional screen and you're just using that screen to pull out the things that work the best, right? Sure. Then as the funnel goes down, you're, you're narrowing down on the basis of functional activity as well as other considerations like practical considerations. Can you grow this organism to scale? Are you going to be able to make enough of it to dose to patients? And those kind of considerations and the other features that you would want to have in a clinical candidate, you mentioned kill switches, things like that need to be incorporated so that you can then kind of get down to that one. And somewhere along the line, not at the very beginning with the thousands and not at the very end with the one, you want to have, or at least we have tried to implement in silico approaches that enable us to improve that confidence about how that strain is going to perform in the human body and the effect that that will have on disease biology so that we can go into that candidate declaration for clinical development and into those human studies with a great deal of confidence about that strain. And that's the, the approach that we've applied. Thousands, hundreds of thousands, whatever that kind of opening funnel is. You know, so you mentioned in silico tools to screen, to try to predict, to uh, increase the confidence of certain strains over another, you don't want to synthesize at the scale of thousands of, of, of strains, right? Um, in terms of the wet lab downstream experimentation of, of that, how much of that is, is kind of predefined process. And this is how we, you know, narrow the funnel. How much of that is, you know, kind of more interpretive, how much of that is, is uh, computer driven? How much of that is human driven? I would love for there to be an algorithm that, tells you how, how, to, how to do it, right? And how to have the optimal strain. And, you know, I'm optimistic that one day we will get there. Um, you know, I think for now, the, the field is in such a place where we're still figuring things out and proving that we can move the needle with respect to disease biology. So there is a huge uh, human component to it at all levels, right? I think on the, you know, from the perspective of the company that's developing these things, there's, there are diverse stakeholders to convince that, that these kinds of approaches work. You know, I think on sure. in implementing these in silico modeling approaches, you know, some of the first challenges that I and my team faced in implementing them and developing them to begin with, were just convincing people in our organization and outside of our organization that the models had value, predictive value. Um, because I think that the burden of proof is on the people who are building the models in the first place. And um, you know, we did that to, to start, we actually did that in a backward looking way. We took um, data that we had from, a, from an existing clinical study where we okay. had biomarker data from urine. And so we knew the answer, right? So from a strategic standpoint or forward looking standpoint, that's not super useful, right? Not, not really informative. <laughs> <laughs> but, but it's helpful for us to build confidence in the method. And so that's what we did. So we, we built a model, this was for our uh, program for the treatment of phenylketonuria. The strain is called SYNV1618. And we had the, the urinary biomarker data and we, we built a mechanistic model or a mathematical model that predicted the function of that strain in the human GI tract. And then we used that to extrapolate biomarker data and compared it to the clinical biomarker data. And what we saw is that the model, which was trained just on in vitro data together with you know, information from the literature about disease biology was able to predict um, with reasonable confidence the, what we saw in the humans. And that model was not trained on the human data. So that gave us a lot of confidence in the approach that, okay, there's, there's something here. So let's sure. use it in a forward looking way. Um, so after that, we, we 
took it in a forward-looking approach and applied it to our next program, which was uh, designed for the treatment of a disease that's called enteric hyperoxaluria. It's a, a disease wherein patients have increased absorption of a compound called oxalate from their diet, leads to the formation of kidney stones. And um, we did a sim used a similar approach of building a model that uh, simulated strain consumption of oxalate within the gut. And when we did that, uh, that model predicted that we could move the needle in terms of urinary oxalate levels in a meaningful way. And so this was a forward-looking approach. It gave us confidence in moving that strain into the clinic. And just recently we've uh, published or released uh, data from healthy volunteers that validated the model. It showed urinary oxalate lowering in healthy volunteers with dosing of this engineered strain. And that validated the, the modeling approach. So this is our first application where we're looking forward and we're driving decisions and driving development um, with that kind of approach. So uh, we talked about the in silico side, right? Designing, um, you know, computer-aided design of your parts, trying to cobble them together, leveraging past data, past uh, metadata, experimental data to help inform which candidates might be the best. Um, you know, the next stage of this is kind of putting it into an in vitro uh, stage, right? Where, where you're kind of looking at things in ideal situations. Uh, could you speak to what types of data you're collecting at this point and, and what the informatic challenges might be. You know, I, I, I'm guessing one is going to be this explosion of data, right? You've got all these biological tests that you're trying to do and you're trying to annotate those back and link it back to the to inform the next round of in silico. But, but could, you, could you speak to that a bit? Yes, absolutely. Um, so I, I think you're absolutely right. Annotating data, having appropriate metadata and, and how you put all of that together into a meaningful picture is uh, is a big challenge, but in general, I love in vitro models. I think that they're they're super useful um, for a lot of reasons. But I think that the most important aspect of in vitro models is that we have generally very tight control over the system. Yeah, predict lots, predictability, <laughs> predictability, robustness, reproducibility. Those are things that scientists need to have. And so um, sometimes you have too much of it. And you have to figure out where the variability is coming from. But the um, in vitro models often have many experimental knobs that you can turn, right? You can adjust the pH or you can adjust sure. the concentration of bile acids in, in, your, in your assay. And so what we're doing is using in vitro um, gastrointestinal simulations, right? To try to mimic what, how the cells will behave in environments similar to what they would experience in the gut. And then we're looking at their behavior across a range of parameters. For example, different pHs, different concentrations of oxygen that they would experience in the gut. And then using that to inform the in silico models to sort of set boundaries and estimate parameters for how the cells will behave under those conditions. Um, so that can be a very powerful and useful approach. That, that's the approach that's underlied uh, everything that we've done so far at SimLogic. I think that there are significant limitations though too. Um, sure. you know, for example, you can only test so many conditions, right? right. You, even if you have a high throughput lab, you know, running um, fluid handlers all the time and, uh, and whatnot, detection can be limiting. How are you measuring these things at the end of the day? And if, if like for us, it's often mass spec based, that can, be, that can be limiting. So you have to be very thoughtful about what experiments you do and what information you're getting out of every incremental experiment and then how you're curating that data and using it going forward. And then just an, an extra sort of meta um, issue is what I alluded to before about uh, this issue of variability, right? You often have in in vitro systems, very tight data, very highly reproducible data from individual experiments or across a range of experiments. Um, but then if you look, if you're doing comparisons across multiple 
you know, sets of material or multiple weeks or months of experiments, understanding what sources of variability are, uh, or what the sources of variability are and where that's coming from can be its own set of challenges. It sounds like you've got a lot of data, right? Uh, tons of in silico kind of part with the annotations of various, you know, you mentioned pH and temperature, oxygen, uh, you mentioned mass spec data. How are you keeping this all together? Are these uh, sort of custom built bespoke tools? Are you leveraging off the shelf tools? Are you, is it a combination? Most of what we're doing are, we're using bespoke tools. There are some tools out there um, for simulating, you know, because in silico modeling of pharma, for pharmaceutical development is not a new idea. People have been doing sure. this for quite a long time. And so there are tools out there that look at you know, bioavailability, which is to say how much of a compound gets absorbed, you know, in, in the body or in the GI tract. There are tools out there that, that simulate these sorts of things right. um, that you could use off the shelf. What we found is that they, those tools, while they're very useful and uh, oftentimes much more sophisticated than, than what, what we're doing in-house, they don't necessarily answer the same questions that we're trying to ask. And so, you know, our our systems are often looking at not just the function of the strain in, in steady state, but its function as it moves through the gut. And so we often are relying on bespoke right. tools um, that we are building and validating iteratively and, and you know, improving over time to answer those sorts of questions. And then I guess the last stage, right? So you've done your in silico modeling. I'm, I'm, I'm sure these don't happen with clear cut lines and there's a lot of blur and overlap between them, but, but kind of starting off with the in silico, moving into your controlled in vitro situation, and then kind of moving into uh, in vivo, what are the types of data that you're collecting on the in vivo side? You know, how large are, are those data sets and what are, what are your biggest challenges on the in vivo side? I'm a reformed um, animal experimental person. That's sort of my background working in germ-free uh, mouse and, and pig foot models. And so I have a lot of experience doing that. And, and I think with that training comes a bias towards in vivo models. And I think many experimental scientists have this point of view that in vivo models are the best approach. Um, so in my, from my point of view, animal models are best suited for answering specific questions where you need to have that complete biology intact, where you're validating some prediction, um, or there is something that's clearly not understood by any other mechanism and you need the animal models to do it. So this gets back to our other discussion about the funnel and wanting to have, when you get down to that one thing, you want it to be the most, the, the, the strain or the clinical candidate that you have the most confidence in. In vivo models help you get there. Because if you can use the in vivo models to validate your predictive methodology, that further increases the confidence versus having a predictive model for which you don't, maybe you haven't convinced others that it's actually predictive. Um, so that that's one of the places where the animal models really shine. Got it. And I, I would imagine the information that you gain from the in vivo studies are, are actually being captured and transferred back to the part or uh, back to the in silico modeling side of it. Or ideally yes. they are. <laughs> I do. <laughs> yes, ideally they are. And I think that, you know, they're bundled in that is a whole question about metadata and data management and labeling and, you know, how do we collaborate effectively across departments and all that sort of thing. But and I think ideally that's, that's the objective, right? Is to have this sort of virtuous cycle of uh, date, generating data, building models, validating those models with new data, and then going around again and generating new data. And ideally what should happen over time is that those models get better and better. The experiments right. get better designed and, you know, we're kind of getting better information overall. Yeah, so we talked about the in silico design, some of the challenges there, moving into in vitro, you know, your ideal situations in a lab in a beaker, um, 
you know, very controlled environments. And then we talked about the in vivo side, and obviously you want to limit that and only use it, only use the animals when you absolutely need them. What does, in, in your opinion, what does the future of synthetic biology look like, you know, for you personally, for your organization, kind of the industry as a whole? Yeah, so I think that we're at a really exciting juncture right now for synthetic biology. And it's sort of a, we're in a prove it phase, right? Where we've been talking about synthetic biology and it's promised for quite a long time. And now we're at a stage where several organizations have gen, uh, genetically modified organisms in the clinic uh, to treat human diseases. And so as an example, uh, for my company, Synlogic, we have uh, two major, uh, we're poised to deliver on two major clinical programs this year in the second half of 21, which include our program for the treatment of phenylketonuria and our program for the treatment of enteric hyperoxaluria. And in both cases, what we're looking at here is not just whether the strain is actually performing the function that it's intended to perform in the body, but whether that can go the next step and actually move the needle with respect to a, a metric in patients that is relevant to their disease. And that will be a really important step for the field and enable us to kind of take our next step and start thinking about what comes next. Can we think about more complex circuits? Can we think about other sensors and parts that we could put in these sorts of things, other chassis organisms that could be used to treat different kinds of diseases? Um, and I think that, you know, from there, it's really, uh, the sky's going to be the limit. Sounds really exciting. Thank you for listening to BioVideo. I'd like to thank Mark for being our guest today, talking about the synthetic biology revolution. I'd also like to thank the listeners. To join the conversation, visit our blog, biorad.io, and don't forget to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. This podcast is an original creation of Biorad Laboratories. Biorad is a trademark of Biorad Laboratories Incorporated in certain jurisdictions. All trademarks mentioned herein are the property of their respective owner.